Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. Its faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing environment. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today, we're talking with Ian Mullins, a professional mountain biker who got addicted to a pain-killing drug that is still legal in the cycling world. He spent over seven years struggling with his addiction for a drug that he thinks should be banned by the World Anti-Doping Agency instead of being encouraged in sport. Ian, let's let's go back to 2008 when this whole started. This whole thing started. You you had a a major bike accident uh, in, in a race. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, I you know race mountain bikes mostly, and I race uh, road bikes just to kind of uh, stay fit and for training. Um, and this was kind of a spring road race. Um, and it was towards the end of the race when it kind of gets gets a little hairy. Um, and um, I was. Right at the front of the pack, and I had another rider chop me, which basically means they just kind of cut me off. Um, and I went down, and so did about 40 other guys, and it was a pretty bad wreck. Um, I luckily just had a bunch of soft tissue damage. Um, but, you know, it was road rash from basically my cheek all the way down to my ankle. Um, so I was was not feeling too super. Um, and that was about a month before I had a really big uh, mountain bike race, a really big uh, event. I do 24-hour uh, 20 mountain bike racing uh, solo. So I kind of was really uh worried that i wasn't going to be able to, to do that race so you know saw the doctor of course um and the doctor uh basically said hey you know i can give you a, a real mild painkiller it's going to kind of um you know help you you know at least train a little bit it'll help get some of the swelling down that kind of thing and and you know it's pretty much harmless you know it's not as addictive as vicodin i wouldn't even worry about it you know and so um he gave me you know 220 count you know, uh, prescriptions for tramadol. And then, uh, you know, that kind of started everything from there. So, so th- describe to somebody who hasn't taken tramadol, uh, it's different than oxycodone or oxycontin in that it's milder. You have a different sensation with it. Uh, describe it. Sure. So, uh, tramadol is, um, it's, you know, what I would describe as a mild painkiller. Um, you certainly do not get the full-on opiate euphoria that you would get with a stronger painkiller, obviously with an Oxycontin, with a, you know, a Vicodin, uh, even with a Percocet or something like that. Um, but what it does do is it gives you just enough uh, kind of pain relief um, to pretty much function. Um, and then uh, the other thing that it does too is it um, affects the serotonin production in the brain, which is something that other opiates don't do. Uh, tramadol is a synthetic opiate. Um, and so it affects serotonin production, which means that it can also... Uh, drastically affect mood levels. 
Um, and so, you know, it's something that when you take it, you don't exactly have the, you know, opiate, you know, kind of wash euphoria sense. Um, but if you do suffer from chronic pain, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very viable medication to use, um, you know, if, if used properly. So you took this after the, the big wreck in 2008. How long did it take you to get back up on the bicycle and back to racing? Um, yeah, so I was on the, uh, like I, I race was on a Saturday. Um, I went, I was off the bike on a Sunday, went to go see the doctor on a Monday. Uh, and I think that afternoon I got on and, and, you know, did about 20 miles or so. And then, you know, by Wednesday I was full on back into training. Um, I definitely was a bit swollen, a bit banged up, but you know, I, you know, I was back to it a lot faster than I should have been. <laughs> um, so there was that. Uh, and then also too, I kind of, Obviously, um, you know, if you're an athlete, you kind of not, you know, you look for every advantage you can possibly get. Um, and I kind of saw that as a setback, me uh, wrecking and me having an event coming up. So, um, you know, me getting on a drug that, you know, was legal to take and it still is legal to take in competition. Um, you know, getting on that drug to get well, you know, I saw that as pretty much necessary in order to get back to where I should have been. So, At what point, though? And how soon did it move from a drug to allow you to get well to a drug that allowed you to finish, allowed you to have an extra burst of strength, if that's the appropriate term? Sure. Um, so the first time I took it in competition, um, I noticed it right away. Um, and usually when that drug is taken, um, and in competition, and it is taken widely in competition in professional cycling, um, and I would assume in amateur cycling as well. Um, but uh, when it is taken, um, you do feel the effects uh, pretty much right away. And the effects, like I said, they're not anything that is going to make you feel like you took a, a heavy painkiller, an opiate. Um, but, you know, the the pain you have in your lower back from, you know, being on the bike for six hours, you know, the sting you have in your muscles, um, you know, your face, your hands, all that pain seems to kind of evaporate to some extent. And you can really focus on your effort, focus on, you know, your tactics, all the kind of stuff that, you know, is really important to do in the finale of a race or, you know, at any point during the race. Um, but yeah, so as soon as I took it in competition, you know, I knew right away, like, oh, hey, you know, this is this is definitely something that I need to put into the routine for sure. Had you not taken this prior to that time? I had not. No, I had uh, I had never heard of this drug, to be honest, before it got prescribed to me. Um, and it's not because I'm. Um, you know, ignorant to, uh, you know, medication and whatnot, you know, I'm actually pretty, uh, pretty savvy when it comes to uh, that kind of thing, and especially uh, pretty knowledgeable about, um, you know, medication use in sport. Um, so, you know, I found this drug and then, you know, I looked it up, of course, because, you know, as an athlete, you're responsible for what goes in your body. So I saw that it definitely was not on the WADA ban list. Um, it was legal to take in competition. And after I had taken it for a couple of years in competition, I realized that it was being taken by other athletes also. Um, so, you know, at that point, you know, I, I definitely didn't have any, any moral issue with using it, it being legal. And, uh, you know, I mean, I saw it as, um, you know, you can take a, a salt tablet late in the race. You can take, um, you know, an extra energy gel late in the race and top off your energy. You can do a lot of things to give you a little bit of performance edge late in the race and they're all legal. So, you know, I saw this as just as legal as taking a salt tablet, um, which technically it is. Um, what I didn't see was the um, real inherent danger that, um, you know, it can pose. After you had the first prescriptions, the first two prescriptions from the physician that uh, uh, treated you after the wreck, uh, 
Did you know at that time that you needed or wanted more of this? And if so, how did you go about getting it? Yeah, no, I didn't. Um, you know, it, it kind of took a while for me to develop, you know, a full on physical and psychological addiction to tramadol. Um, I probably took it for maybe a year or two um, as needed. Um, and after that prescription ran out, um, I have a series of gastrointestinal issues. I have chronic pancreatitis, among other things. Um, and so uh, I was actually prescribed it again from my GI doctor um, as uh, something to kind of uh, use as needed for, you know, intense GI pain, that kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, I, I still was able to get it, you know, for a couple years, you know, legally, uh, you know, through a prescription. Um, but, you know, the way that I did use the drug as far as a performance enhancing drug in sport, um, you know, that obviously wasn't to doctor's recommendations or, you know, to my prescription. Um, so, yeah. Um, but, you know, dependency probably took once I started using it for my GI issues um, and, you know, that started happening a lot more frequently, um, you know, dependency probably, you know, the onset of that, you know, once you start using it daily, I'd say, you know, 30 to 60 days um, and you're definitely going to feel some some symptoms of uh, withdrawal if you try to stop taking that right away. That early in the process, 30 to 60 days. Oh, yeah. And that's the thing, you know, tramadol too, like I said, it's a mild painkiller. Um, you know, you can, you can, at a stronger opiate, you know, you can become addicted a lot faster. Um, and also too, you know, everybody's different. Everybody's opiate receptors in their brain are different, how people process things are. But, um, you know, any, any intake of a drug like that on a regular basis uh, is going to cause dependency. Um, and, you know, that's, that's definitely what happened. So, when you when you took this, you could cycle through the pain. So, did you take it just when you were cycling, or did you take it every day? Um, no, I, I, there were definitely long stretches of uh, my life where I was taking that every day, um, either to battle pain, but also, um, you know, if I was doing a big training block or if you know I had races coming up, um, I would definitely use it as a performance enhancer as well, um, knowing the benefits and the effects of it, you know, during a race, um, or, you know, leading up to a race, you know, you go out and do a big training block and you beat your body up. Um, it's kind of nice to have something on board that's going to reduce swelling and, and not make you feel like total garbage. Um, you know, so yeah, I mean, but, uh, you know, there was, there was periods of my life where I was using it every day. And in those periods, I was 100% dependent on that. Now, you said that the doctor said that, uh, don't worry about it, it's not as addictive as the other opioids, uh, but you talked about a physical addiction and a, a psychological addiction. Was your case a combination of both, or, or was it just purely physical? Um, no, it was definitely a combination of both. I think, too, that... Um you know, anybody that deals with chronic pain, um, it, you know, whatever they do to deal with it, um, you know, that's something that they not necessarily rely on as a crutch, but they definitely rely on having it. Um, and so, you know, if there are times where, you know, I wasn't taking it or, you know, I didn't have a prescription for it, didn't have access to it at all. Um, I mean, those were definitely huge periods of stress um, psychologically, um, be, not, you know, knowing that you didn't have it. And then also knowing that, you know, that was, you know, that was a little bit of a boost, um, you know, in training and racing um, and not having that, you kind of felt like something was a little bit missing. Um, not that I would exclusively only race using Tramadol. You know, I didn't necessarily use it every time I raced or every time I did a big training block, but the times that I was taking it, you know, daily, the times that I was physically dependent on that drug, I definitely was. 
Um, so I think the psychological point um, of that addiction um, is a little bit based in the fact that, you know, I deal with chronic pain all the time and really, you know, have anxiety about, um, you know, the ability to control it. Um, and then also too, knowing full well that that was, you know, one of the little weapons in my arsenal as far as, you know, nutrition, training, equipment, all that kind of stuff that you plan on as a, you know, a professional cyclist, as an athlete, uh, looking for performance. Um, you know, that, that was one of the things and it wasn't just for performance. It was, you know, if, if my guts hurt today, I can't get up and ride. I can't train. Um, the number of times I started a race, um, just sick, you know, throwing up on my handlebars five miles in you know, because I either didn't have that drug or, you know, wasn't taking it at the time or was going through withdrawal at the time because of that. Um, I mean, those, that happened often. Um, so it, it wasn't necessarily just jump on the tramadol train and stay on it. I mean, it was kind of, you know, when I had it, I definitely needed it, definitely was dependent on it. When I didn't have it, I definitely was worried about when I could have either access to it or access to something else that was going to have an effect that was going to help me. Did you find substitutes along the way, uh, st uh, what commonly are referred to as street drugs? Yeah, um, and the, the, the thing that's crazy is that the drugs that I did substitute with it, um, you can call them street drugs if you want to, um, but they're 100% pharmacological, you know, drugs that came from the pharmacy leaked onto the street. So, you know, I, I never did anything, uh, you know, there was never, any, you know, any heroin, there was never anything like that. No, but fentanyl and. Oh yeah. I could, you know, I could definitely get access to, um, put to Percocets. Percocet is a really, um, accessible drug, not only just for athletes, but, um, you know, I live in Seattle. It's a big market. Um, and you know, the opioid crisis in the, in the country is obviously, um, you know, not just in rural America, it's kind of everywhere. So yeah, I could have access to Percocets and I did use those. Um, fentanyl was a drug that I had access to and did use a couple of times, but fentanyl is a very, very, very strong drug. Um, and that was not at all what <laughs> I was either looking for or what was going to, um, help me out. You know, I was more looking for maintaining, um, uh, you know, maintaining my wellness, maintaining, uh, keeping pain away and then, you know, maintaining any sort of performance and advantage that I would have by just being well and or using that. So, you know, yeah, I mean, there was any sort of prescription drug that I could obtain that I didn't have a prescription for. Um, yeah, you know, that, that, that occurred for sure. Codeine syrup, Benadryl, all kinds of different things. Yeah. I mean, any, anything that basically I could find that was going to have an effect that was going to, um, you know, keep, keep the sickness from the withdrawal away at first. And then also, you know, keep the chronic pain away and then, you know, allow me to do what I was trying to do, which was, you know, race a bike, um, you know, at long distances, like a crazy person. <laughs> yeah. So. Ian, at what point, and, and I know this is common in addiction, but at what point did it move from you from taking away pain to a need to keep from being sick? Um, it's kind of hard to kind of, you know, find exactly. Is it gradual? Was. It is. A, I mean, it's different for everybody, but for me, it was a bit gradual. But, um, you know, the thing that is, is different for people that have addiction that have, um, that land there because of chronic pain issues, not because of, you know, either, you know, replacing a drug or, or searching recreationally for something, you know, people that get addicted to, um, you know, opioids because they had a surgery, because they had an injury, things like that. You know, it's not so much that um, there's a, a smooth transition. It's more 
my pain is either keeping away the chronic pain I have or keeping away the pain that I would have from not taking this drug because of the withdrawal I would have from it. And that line becomes blurred um, when you don't even know what kind of pain you're in that day. You know, if, if you're going to actually have the chronic pain that you have or if you're going to have pain related to your addiction or related to your withdrawal from your addiction. Um, and when you kind of, for me, when I kind of realized, hey, you know, why are you, why, why is this even happening today? Why does this need to happen today? Um, you know, like what exactly are you sick from right now that you need to have this or that you need to use this to, to move around or to do whatever it is you need to do? Um, and I think that was the point where I kind of, you know, was just tired of the whole, the whole everything, the, how my body felt, um, you know, and I was, was willing to look for, for other alternatives that not only were going to make my body healthy, but, um, you know, we're going to allow me to be, uh, a little bit more normal with life. You know, um, anybody that has chronic pain, anybody that has addiction, um, you know, their, their life is pretty much watching a clock and that's, that's really no fun to live that life. You know, I was going to say it, it sounds to me and, and my experience talking with others, it, it reaches a point of being the dominant factor in life. Is it, did that happen with you? Yeah. And, you know, you try to distract yourself, you know, with whatever you have going on in your life to, you know, keep it away from that. But yeah, I mean, it definitely is the dominant factor in life. Um, uh, you know, when it, when it takes hold like that. And also too, when, you know, the, the physical addiction is going to be there, but the psychological addiction that's going to kind of keep you, your anxiety at a super high level about, you know, what's going on with your body, why, you know, and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it'll break you down. It'll break you down fairly quickly. At what point did you say enough? Um, you know, I just kind of had a, just a really bad year, you know, um, and it was just everything that happened to me during that year, um, you know, in and out of the sport, obviously, but just, you know, my entire life that year just did not go the way I wanted it to. Um, you know, things were not happening, uh, for me in all areas of life. Um, and I kind of just had to take a moment and, you know, kind of step out of my, you know, my little pain circle and be like, look, you know, I know you're dealing with this. I know that this is something that you, you need an answer for, but the answer that you have right now is definitely not working. Um, and it's, you know, not anything that you can stay on that path and expect to stay well for any, you know, amount of time. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of uh, it took a little while to get to that point. But I think, you know, after living just years and years of kind of on and off, um, you know, on and off that drug dealing, you know, doing whatever you can to deal with your, you know, your pain in ways that, you know, are not advised medically and are not, you know, even legal per se. Um, you know, that's that's stress. And that's, you know, stress does a lot to age you. Stress does a lot to kill you. And, you know, I'm, I'm trying to stay alive right now. So <laughs> but, <laughs> that but, was kind of. Uh, but yeah. that that stress if as if I understand it and, and I'd love to hear it from you, it just doesn't go away. You, you don't don't turn the switch, even if you're on a, a recovery path. Uh, there are ancillary things emotionally and, and psychologically that, that go along that recovery is not all that smooth sometimes, even even if you're 100 percent into recovery. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, and, you know, we can talk all we want about, you know, the um, 
success rate of certain recovery programs and whatnot. Um, and you know, I don't, that really doesn't do justice to either the, the program itself or to the, the addicts or people that are suffering from that. But yeah, it is not, it is not by any means a smooth transition or a switch or anything like that, you know, and it takes a lot of work, um, in all parts of your life, you know, and it's not just, you know, battling this, it's, you know, um, you know, resetting every, every domino you knocked back down, um, and all that kind of stuff too. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a battle. And, you know, I, like I said, I had a lot of years, um, dealing with addiction and I had, you know, a good year of, um, just kind of dealing with how do you come to terms with, with not, not doing this? You know, how do you, how do you put your life back together? Um, and you know, there's plenty of people that suffer with addiction that, you know, don't ever get it together or have, you know, multiple relapses because of, um, you know, their, just their inability to deal with their addiction or their inability to get the proper help. Um, you know, so, you know, I, I definitely am not going to sit here and tell you that, you know, if you decide you don't want to be an addict, you're not going to be an addict anymore. I think that's ridiculous. But, um, you know, you, you, the strength you have within yourself, um, you can find that and you can do whatever you need to with that to get where you need to get. But you um, have to battle through things like depression and, and oh, yeah. <laughs> other yeah. ancillary and that's, that's things. A, that's a real common thing too is, um, post, post sobriety depression. Um, and you know, the, the thing that kind of helped me deal with that a lot was, um, we have that a lot in, in athletics where, you know, if you have a huge event that, uh, huge race, whatever it is, huge, you know, match that you've been planning for, for, you know, any number of time you've been training for, um, and however that goes, whatever the outcome, um, when it's over, you, you know, you feel despondent. Um, you kind of have that, what, you know, what's next. I don't even know what to do. Um, and you have, you know, maybe anywhere from a day to a couple weeks of, you know, pretty deep depression after a big event like that. It's like an adrenaline drain on steroids, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, it's like going off the, you know, going off in an anabolic in an improper way. And basically you have no biofeedback left and your body is like, Hey, what's next? What's next? You know? So yeah, I mean, and that I equated that with the depression, um, you know, when you're, when you're fighting addiction, when you're, when you're sober, um, you know, or when you're, you know, not, not on the drug that, that you've been addicted to. I mean, there's a, a pretty severe kind of fall off, um, anywhere from, you know, two weeks to six months afterwards. Um, and a lot of times too, that's when a lot of addicts have, um, a big risk for relapse. Um, you know, when they have depression, when they have stress like that, um, you know, luckily I have a really good support system around me and, you know, that was something that, um, you know, I, I didn't feel was was going to happen for me, but I definitely, you know, did and still do battle with, um, you know, a lot of depression, a lot of mental health issues regarding, um, you know, that uh, the addiction that I had and, and everything that I've had to deal with, you know, since then. We'll be back after this short message. At the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University, Students and faculty aren't just ready for change, they're hungry for it. The Scripps College of Communication was awarded $878,000 by Ohio University for an immersive media initiative that will allow students to become skilled leaders in immersive media, especially virtual and augmented reality. The college's Game Research and Immersive Design Lab will serve as the hub for the initiative and provide several million dollars worth of equipment, processes, intellectual property, and award-winning scholars and partnerships for the project. Learn more 
at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. As I understand it, Ian, one of the reasons that uh, you're sharing your story with us and, and you shared it with the magazine uh, here recently and with the BBC is is the relationship to the drug and the cycling world. Uh, I, I read a comment that you made that you think 80% of tramadol abuse is in the sport of cycling? Yeah, that's an actual figure that... Um... So WADA, which is the World Anti-Doping Agency, um, and they're pretty much the governing body um, uh, of all sport that basically says, you know, what you can and can't take. Um, they did a – Tramadol has been on what they call their watch list, meaning when they take um, drug samples um, from athletes, be it blood or urine, um, they test for, uh, you know, all the drugs that are banned, of course, and then they also test for drugs that are on their watch list. Um, Tramadol has been on their watch list for over four years now, meaning they have some really hard data on um, athlete samples um, and, you know, Tramadol use. And what they found was in 2015, um, so not last year, but the year before, um, 80% of all positive Tramadol tests um, in blood and in urine were in the cycling world. Um, So, I mean, that not only reinforces kind of everything I've said as far as it being a performance enhancing drug, but it reinforces the fact that, um, you know, hard endurance sports like that, as well as sports like the NFL, you know, they have their toward all issue, but you know, there's, there's going to be some poison in every one of these sports, um, that is meant to do, you know, something to enhance performance, but all it really does is just, uh, do the opposite, you know? Now, help somebody understand, uh, you know, you, you've got these long races, uh, multi-day races, but I read a term that you used called a finish bottle. How yeah. does that relate to tramadol and how does that fit into this picture? Sure. So um, finish bottles, that was a term that... Um, was kind of coined in um, pro tour road cycling, um, which mostly takes place in Europe. Um, it's kind of where the highest level of road cycling is. Um, I'm a professional mountain bike racer, so um, I've never raced at that level or raced those races. Um, but, you know, I know plenty of people that have, um, you know, my, my good friend and my employer was a former Tour de France winner. So, you know, I definitely know what goes on there. And usually what happens in the end of a, a long road race um, Road races are anywhere from four to nine hours. The end of a long road race, um, you get a bottle. And the last time you can accept a feed bottle, you know, usually from uh, your car, your team car from a feed zone where you have to, you know, roll through and grab a bottle real quickly from uh, somebody standing on the roadside. Um, so those bottles are all, you know, of course, from your team. Um, and those bottles usually always contain um, a very high amount of caffeine. So usually about 150 milligrams of caffeine. And, um, typically they usually always, uh, contain at least 50 milligrams of tramadol. Um, what that does is that gives you that little bit of pain relief, obviously. And then that little bit of caffeine, which gives you a little bit of focus towards the end of the race. Um, and these are super common in road cycling, um, in mountain bike racing, um, it's not necessarily a team sport, uh, that way you definitely have sponsors and you definitely have supporters, but when you're out there, you're on your own. So, um, you know, you're kind of left to regulate your own kind of finish bottle or whatnot in, in the races that I would do. Um, and, you know, obviously you want to take those, um, you know, as soon as you start to feel your performance wane, 
Um, you know, in, in those big road races, they take them at the very end. You know, I would sometimes, my races were a lot longer. I have 24 hour races. So sometimes I'd start taking them, you know, eight hours into the race. Um, and then I would be taking them for, you know, the next 12. Um, so yeah, finished bottles is something that happens. Um, and it's meant as a performance enhancer, obviously, but the downside of that is, um, some of these guys are doing 60 races a year. So that's 60 days a year. You're getting a finished bottle. So to think that you're not going to develop an addiction or, you know, even worse, um, you know, some of the side effects of tramadol are horrible, grand mal seizures, um, respiratory distress, all these kind of things that you definitely don't want to be having while going 40 miles an hour on tires that are as wide as your pinky. Um, so I know, yeah, I mean, I know you're yeah. still competing. Uh, it, you're not using, uh, you know, people are using, do you feel it a disadvantage competitively? Yeah. Um, you know, I don't. Um, and one of the reasons is because, um, I don't really feel that, um, in, in the races that I'm doing, um, the, the drugs that matter, uh, are, are, are not necessarily drugs that guys, uh, are going to be doing, um, mainly because of a cost and b just the stigma around doing those kind of drugs is just not really there, um, anymore. Um, it is at the very, very high road level, but you know, where I'm racing mountain bikes, it's not really a thing. Um, guys in, in my races, um, you know, they're more likely to use a drug like pro vigil, which is, you know, basically like, uh, an Adderall for adults. Um, so, you know, when you're racing 18 plus hours, being able to stay awake is key. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that, you know, I'm kind of like, eh, you know, it's obviously not legal and it's cheating, but you know. I'm, you know, I, I'm never gonna, you know, throw a red flag about it. You know, it's the way I see it, and this is not a typical view, but based on um, the amount of time that I've, you know, loved the sport, um, been involved in the sport, and you know, the things I've seen go on in that sport. Um, you know, sports war and um, what is cheating in war? Is there cheating in war? You know. Um, you can say that there is, and you can say that there's wrong things to do, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, like, you know, there's a lot of wrong things that have gone on in sport. There's a lot of wrong things that have gone on in war, um, that are never going to get called out. Um, so for me to start calling out, um, you know, certain things as, as a performance enhancing benefit, because it's taking away from, from me. Um, you know, I just think that's a waste of my time to be honest. Um, and I'm not saying that I think that, um, you know, cheating is good or that, you know, illegal drug use in sport is good. I definitely do not think that, but it's a lot like the war on drugs in this country. Um, you know, for us to think that we're really going to get a leash around the opiate problem based on how we treat it, um, you know, with the justice department and, and how they treat things, it's same thing in sport. There's no way we're going to solve that doping problem in sport, given the way they police it, given the way they treat people that have come out and said that this is what they've done. Um, so yeah, it's kind of one of those things where I'm not really gonna, I'm not really gonna sit here and point fingers at people that are doing things that I know are wrong. Um, I'm not saying they're good, but yeah, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna basically advocate for getting help for people that need it, you know, not pointing the finger at people that are just trying to do the most, you know? Well, you mentioned the World Anti-Doping Agency, WADA, uh, has not banned tramadol. The U.S. Anti-Doping Agency has pushed for a ban. What seems to be the roadblock? <laughs> so, 
uh, one of the main reasons that uh, USADA, which is the U.S. branch, has pushed for tramadol um, is because um, I uh, sent an email to Travis Tigert, who's the CEO of USADA. Um, Travis, he's been um, quite a vocal proponent of um, anti-doping, obviously, in sport. Um, and, uh, you know, I started prodding him after I saw that tramadol was on the watch list um, and was kind of saying, hey, uh, this is not really an okay drug to be saying is cool. And the fact that you guys haven't even said peep about the dangers of this drug, but you'll, you know, tweet a million times about make sure you check your supplements from GNC so they don't care any band agents. It just makes you guys look stupid. It makes you guys look like you don't care about the health and safety of athletes and, you know, what, what's really good, Travis. So um, Travis ended up giving me his phone number. Um, and so for about two years, Travis and I have been kind of back and forth um, you know, and I'll just kind of prod him about this every time I see something, um, you know, he, he definitely, you know, knew my story before I kind of put it out there. Um, but I basically said, Travis, look, you know, like this is not okay. You know, it's not okay. And you have the lot of numbers knowing that it's a problem in, in cycling specifically. And, you know, he's not necessarily a cycling advocate. He's for all athletics. Um, but cycling has been a big part of the anti-doping, um, you know, agenda over the past, you know, number of years, obviously. Um, so, you know, I kind of started prodding Travis about that. Um, and eventually they started uh, doing what their science department did a bunch of studies on it, um, or at least, you know, sourced out to, to look for studies on it. Um, and about, you know, three months ago, they finally released something saying, hey, we are really not cool with Tramadol being legal. Uh, we want all athletes to know that it is legal and that it's really not safe. And these are all the things that can happen if you do take it. Um, I was really happy to see that. Um, I have not been happy with a lot of the things, you know, Mr. Tiger and the USADA has done in the past. Um, but to see that they're paying attention to that and doing it in the right way, they're not dope shaming, um, you know, people that take tramadol, they're not, you know, doing what they do with performance enhancers, which, you know, I feel is, is not the way to deal with things. But, um, yeah, so USADA, you know, is, is full in on, we want tramadol banned. Um, WADA, of course, is a arm of the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, which is one of the most corrupt bodies in sport. So um, to see WADA, you know, pretty much not move on tramadol does not shock me at all. Um, but and I said this to the BBC, too, um, and not to sound like Kanye West in 2005, but, you know, WADA does not care about athletes. They do not. Um, the health and safety of athletes, um, you know, anything that having to do with athletes, WADA does not care. Um, they're, they're strictly a, a body that's, um, an arm of the IOC. They're there to make money. Um, if they did care about athletes, um, you know, they would have programs set up for athletes that have had issues, health issues with doping or issues that, you know, uh, are re regarding addiction in sports. They have none of these resources. Um, and they get millions and millions of dollars from the IOC every year. Not $1 is, uh, devoted towards, you know, um, you know, recognition of addiction in sports, recognition of what PEDs can do to harm you and how can we help those athletes that have been harmed. Um, this is a big issue in the NFL right now, obviously, with concussions, with Toradol use and, you know, ex-players saying, hey, you know, you guys ruined my life. You know, um, you know, if a cyclist says that, you know, they're banned for life, they'll never get a contract again. Um, you know, so it's it's really saddening to see that WADA it just, you know, is acting the way they act, but it's also not shocking. So, well, Ian, thank you so much for talking with us and, and good luck with your sort of one man push 
here to to get Tramadol banned? Well, you know, like I said, hopefully it's not just a one man push. Hopefully everybody's going to get kind of behind it. But um, I just think that uh, people don't really know how dangerous or uh, how effective that drug is as a performance enhancer. Um, and all the, you know, anti-doping people out there, if they really knew the truth about this drug, they'd be, you know, right behind me, too. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do. Um, and also, too, you know, this isn't just about. Um, you know, tramadol in sport too. I mean, there's plenty of people that deal with addiction uh, that, you know, have never bounced a ball or never ridden a bike or anything. Um, and this is for them too. You know, I mean, uh, people that fight with addiction and there's a lot of people I know um, down there in Southeast Ohio that have got, you know, issues with it. Um, and there's a lot of people out here in Seattle too that have issues with it. And, uh, you know, it's, I, I'm in the sport world, so I definitely want to advocate to, to keep my people safe. But I mean, this isn't just about sport. This is about humans. So, um, thanks a lot, Tom. I really appreciate your time. Today, we've talked with Ian Mullins, a recovering addict who was hooked on tramadol, a dangerous drug still legal in the cycling world. This podcast is produced by WWB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcasts Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about any of our podcasts, please direct them to me by email at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.